The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known by its acronym, NATO, was founded in 1949 to contain Soviet expansionism. President Truman told a joint session of Congress, it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. This was the essence of the Truman Doctrine, adopted on a bipartisan basis with Senator Arthur Vandenberg playing the most significant role on the Republican side, it encapsulated core American values and interests. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of its empire raised a question. Was NATO's mission accomplished? President Trump at one point called the defensive alliance obsolete. He later walked back that description, though he was adamant that all members should be pulling the wagon, not riding it. Hard to argue with him on that point. Vladimir Putin, Russia's ruler, has long wanted to divide and, if possible, destroy NATO. But the brutal imperialist war he's launched against neighboring Ukraine has instead revived NATO, so far at least. This raises lots of questions. I'm especially eager to pose them to Frederick Kagan, senior fellow and director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute. Fred was one of the architects of the successful surge strategy in Iraq, whose significance FDD understood and energetically supported. And he's a former professor of military history at West Point. His books include Lessons for a Long War and The End of the Old Order, Napoleon and Europe, 1801 to 1805. He's someone I've looked to and learned from for many years. Also on hand to both ask and answer questions, Bradley Bowen, a West Point graduate who served for more than 15 years on active duty, as a U.S. Army officer, helicopter pilot, staff officer in Afghanistan, assistant professor at West Point, and top defense advisor in the U.S. Senate. He's now senior director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you've joined us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. You know, Fred, I'm going to start with a slight digression. The Russo-Ukraine war, it kind of takes you back to your roots, doesn't it, Fred? I mean, You've been focused mainly on the Middle East over the years I've known you, but your doctorate and your undergraduate piece was in what we used to call Soviet studies. It has a, an odd ring to it now. Just reflect on that for a moment. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on. And thanks for talking about this uh, really important topic and reuniting me with my old bat- battle buddy because uh, Brad and I were at West Point together, um, actually. Um yeah, so I graduated in 1991 with a degree in Russian and East European studies. When I'd started that degree, it had been called Soviet and East European studies. Um, and it felt like not the best career move in many senses uh, to come out in 1991 <laughs> with a degree in Russian and East European studies, except that I wanted to be a Russian historian. And that's um, 
what uh, what I tried to do. And so I went back and doubled down on that um, possibly poor career decision and got a got a PhD in, in Russian and Soviet military history. Um, then I, of course, didn't get the job in Russian history at West Point, but di- but did get the job in military history. Um, and then spent a lot of time um, really not using much of my Russian and Soviet um, expertise and background. And over time, it really seemed like it, it was becoming just an irrelevant sort of intellectual hobby. Um, and I would have been quite content for it to stay that way. I have to tell you, um, it is a sadness in my life that my original academic expertise actually has turned out to matter. Um, it's a happiness in my life that the aspects of it that I was most interested in, namely the Soviet practice theory and doctrine of mechanized maneuver warfare, has actually con- turned out to continue to be irrelevant because the Russians apparently forgot almost all of the lessons that the Soviets had learned. And that has turned out uh, better for Ukraine than things might otherwise have been. I'll just say one more one more moment on this, and that is, you know, I was an exchange student in the Soviet Union at Leningrad State University about the same time Putin was there. We were kind of overlapped. Uh, I, I often say I, I'm not sure I knew him, though I drank vodka with a lot of guys in Vladimir or Volva. <laughs> so it's possible. It's entirely possible. Um, but and people didn't, and, and certainly my professors, no one talked about the end of the Soviet Union, with very few exceptions. You may remember there was a book by Andrei Amalric called Will the Soviet Union Survive to 1984? He picked that date from, you know, for the obvious reason. But but if anybody thought the Soviet Union would collapse, which very few did, the idea was that, well, you know, it would become a normal country, a prosperous place. People were industrious. They were smart. They were educated. You know, I thought at my age, I'd be going back there for summer vacations, you know, and be great. And it's a, it's a great disappointment. What, what's happened there? Okay, so cutting to the chase, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. I've been hearing from people, and not all of them isolationists, who clearly do not understand why NATO exists anymore, or why we should be in it or supporting it, much less why we should be eager to have two new nations, Sweden and Finland, join. They see it as a sort of, I don't know, international Praetorian Guard, you know, nations sign up and the U.S. agrees to defend them, which is a good deal for them, but it's a bad deal for Americans. Fred, what don't they understand? Well, I want to start by with the with the last bit, with a personal anecdote that really sort of brought this home to me, because um, in 2009, Kim and I had the opportunity to go to Afghanistan. I just tell Kim is your wife, but she's also the founder of the Institute the, for the Study of War. For the Study right. of War, a great institution, you, which yeah. um, uh, uh, which you which you helped in the in the early days, uh, uh, for which we're very grateful. I'm proud to say we did. Um, and uh, and which is now with the excellent Russia team there is producing the the conflict maps that you see almost everywhere, and I'm proud to be right. associated with them. Um, but you know, Kim and I had the opportunity to to, to visit Afghanistan in 2009. And one of the things that we did was go to a ramp ceremony, the the ceremony at which the remains of a soldier who has died in war are loaded onto the to the ramp of the C-130 in our case, um, and then flown home. And of course, it's a very solemn ceremony, and it really focuses you on 
aspects of the war. But the thing that was remarkable was that the soldier who was being loaded onto the uh, C-130 that we saw was a Romanian who was in Zabul province and who had been out fighting the Taliban alongside us uh, and had been killed in that effort. That's one um, thing to have in your mind. Another bizarre, I mean, I had a whole array of bizarre things that I observed in Afghanistan, which was a really interesting thing. And let me interject this. What we're talking about here are the NATO forces who who fought beside yeah. us in Afghanistan because they had a commitment to us because we had right. been attacked. And so that's where, how we and we were going to go to Afghanistan. Now people will say, I'm just, yeah, but Afghanistan was a great failure. Um, I don't think it. That's a whole nother conversation we've had on this. Brad and I talked about this a lot. It it should not have ended the way it did. That was because Biden and I think you can say Biden and Trump decided they were going to capitulate to the and really surrender to the Taliban. And that was a very bad idea. Maybe if you want to say a word about that as well. No, 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 no. There's a whole other there's a whole other podcast that we could do sometime about about that. And I'm I'm happy to get into it. But I, I I. my point here is simply that, you know, so it was the International Security Assistance Force was the organization, ISAF, that, that ran the Afghan war. And it was given a very derogatory uh, meaning by some people as standing for I saw Americans fighting. And it was a ding on our NATO allies who were there and who many people said never left their bases. And I found that unbelievably offensive because it was also con to counter to fact. And I just would tell people it's fascinating because the the first ramp ceremony I ever went to in my life was for a Romanian soldier who was there uh, who died fighting with us. You know, another thing that was bizarre about that experience, Cliff, when you drove into headquarters ISAF, you drove past a Soviet-era BMP. That's what guarded the gate. Mm. Why? Because the guys who had gate guard duty the entire time that we were there were Macedonians. Mm. Okay, and you know what? They were the only people who had dangerous duty at ISAF headquarters. And they were shot at multiple times. I I was actually there for two out of the three major attacks on the headquarters. And it was the Macedonians who were actually there protecting the perimeter. And that wasn't the only Macedonian force that, that was there. We had Macedonian special forces that were also operating throughout the country. We visited Polish troops, taking it to the Taliban in Ghazni province. We visited Polish troops fighting in Iraq. My point is, we have had NATO allies fighting alongside of us and dying alongside of our soldiers because they are allies in all of the 9-11 wars. And just, it would be remiss not to say, Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty has been activated precisely once. And it was activated after 9-11 on our behalf not on behalf of Europe. So jump in and say it's wonderful to to be connected with Fred again. We were together at West Point and we were also together in Afghanistan, as you may recall, Fred in 2010 and um and I worked on a lot of these issues together. And I, I'm so glad you're emphasizing what you are here because when I when I hear fellow Americans talk about our NATO members as free li- freeloaders or free riders, it, it makes me angry because it's so ill-informed. Um, it's ill-informed of exactly what in, on multiple levels, but including in, in what you're talking about and a lack of appreciation for what our NATO allies did in Afghanistan. You know, we all remember where we were on 9-11, those of us who are old enough to remember. 
we were attacked, they weren't attacked, yet they honored their word. They stood with us in our moment of need, invoked Article 5, and that wasn't just one fleeting moment of political courage. They backed it up for 20 years, right? During 20 years in Afghanistan, 300,000 300, non-U.S. NATO troops served in Afghanistan, representing every NATO member country. At one point in 2011, there were more than 38,000 non-NATO, non-U.S. NATO troops in Afghanistan. And as you know well, Fred and Cliff, you know too, more than 1,000 of them never returned home to their families. So when I hear an American talking about freeloading or free-riding NATO members, I wonder, I, I hope the families of those NATO members killed don't hear that, because I think they'd be right to be quite upset about that. Again, to play devil's advocate, or even to be fair, there are differences among the various NATO members. Uh, Germany, which is the richest country in Europe, ha- has not financially certainly contributed, and its readiness and capabilities are, have not been great. Brad will remember when I inadvertently sent a very senior German dip- diplomat a note intended for Brad um, that said, uh, you know, they're very nice people, but I do wish they would make a real contribution to the collective security uh, and and get off this and, and not make themselves dependent on Russian oil and gas or gas through uh, Nord Stream 2. And had quite a lively conversation with that diplomat <laughs> as a result. <laughs> I, can, I can well imagine. I do remember that dope moment when you realized uh, you had gone to him as well. But, you know, to your credit, you stood by it and then you explained your argument and you had a civil exchange or lunch after that. That was great. But, I mean, you know, I've been critical of Germany, too. And uh, you're you're right. There, of course, when you're talking about 29 allies, each of them contributes in different ways and have their own strengths and weaknesses. But you know, just a, a quick anecdote: um, when Biden made his decision to withdraw all U.S. forces on April 14, 2021, more than 6,000 non-U.S. NATO troops were still serving in Afghanistan, and 1,300 of them were German. So, you know, I mean, so I think that's important. And when we had those Americans horribly killed in the last days before our our, our date certain withdrawal, who treated the the injured and killed Americans in, in the hospital? It was Norwegians treating them. So just again and again and again, they stood with us for the full 20 years. And that doesn't justify everything and anything with respect to the alliance. But I think we just got to start with that truth that they were there with there for us in our moment of need. Look, I think a lot of the West Europeans are differently from the East Europeans and some others in that they thought everything can be solved diplomatically. All it takes is a conversation with Vladimir Putin and we'll, yeah, we, we won't have any problems. So I remember one of the things that the German diplomat said to me was, look, they're getting addicted to our money. We're not getting addicted to their gas. He was wrong about that, but I understand that was the view. I do think, or I hope, there's, this has been a, a wake-up call for, for the Germans. I think all of Schultz is different from Angela Merkel and that they now do see that NATO is a very important. I'll let you. I'll, I'll let you talk about that, please, Fred. And then I want to talk about Finland and Sweden. Yeah. Well, I, I actually just want to step back from all this for a minute because look, I'm I, I'm I'm happy to engage in rounds of German bashing, and the Germans <laughs> deserve a lot of bashing. And and we haven't even said you know Macron, <laughs> and 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 I'm happy to I'm happy to talk about the unwisdom of of the of, of French policy for most of France's history. Um, <laughs> But, um, and I can say that as a Napoleonic historian, I'm quite comfortable getting into that uh, as well. But um, what are we doing? We, we need to be clear what conversation we're having. Are, are we evaluating every single country based on do we like their policy? Are they intelligent? Are, they doing are we asking the question, does the alliance bring value to the United States? That's the question, right? Right. That's the question. So 
A military alliance brings value by bringing troops into the field when they're needed for our purposes. That's the perp- That's why you have a military alliance, right? Okay. Has NATO done that? Yeah. Do we have problems with what lots of member states have done? Do I have issues with the way certain of them comported themselves when they were in theater? Yeah. By the way, I have issues with the way we comported ourselves in certain respects when we were in theater too. I also think the United States has not have been perfect in its policies in various respects. And we could we beat on ourselves all the time too. But if the question at hand is, has the United States gotten a single solitary thing from all of the money and effort we put into the alliance? The answer is yes. And Brad made it very clear in the coin of the realm that is how you measure the effectiveness of an alliance. The alliance has returned value on our investment because you know what? We can have whatever conversations you want to have about should we have invaded Iraq? Should we have blown it the way that we did? No. Should we have you know tried to fix it? Yes. Should we have stuck it out? Yes. Say in Afghanistan, all the same conversations and stuff. You can then ask yourself the following question. Would you have been, would you have prefer, preferred to be in a world in which the only forces that were engaged were Americans and in which all of the responsibilities and tasks, military and non-military that our NATO and by the way, non-NATO allies picked up in those conflicts were performed by Americans and a hundred percent of that burden, those casualties and that cost fell on the United States? Or would you prefer what we had? I would take what we had any day. And would, let's follow from there. Would you agree? And I think I would. I think I looked at that Finland and Sweden coming in, small countries that they are, nevertheless, bring capability, strengthen NATO rather yeah. than weaken NATO. Absolutely. People don't get um, that. You'd be amazed. They think, oh, Sweden no, no, no. has been neutral. Oh, Finland. What? No, I understand. No, no, they are tiny. Um, and, uh, and, and in principle, you can look at it and they add a long border and, 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 a, and, a whole bunch of other, and a whole bunch of other things. And I understand all of those issues. Look, there are some actually really important when you get into like the strategic part of this and you look at, you know, like geography and stuff. Um, there are certain islands and things that they have that it's actually super important for us to be able to work as alliance partners and not with ostensible neutrals to be able to say to the Russians, actually, no, you don't get to operate in the Baltic. And with them in the alliance, if that is our choice, we can make that choice. And it is much harder to make that choice with them not in the alliance. So just, you know, little military geeky stuff. But beyond that, the Russian army has just demonstrated that it is, shall we say, not 10 feet tall. Uh, Sweden and Finland have small militaries. Well, there was that little Soviet Finnish war thing. (laughs) in which the Finns demonstrated that that isn't always the measure of of determining the outcome. I think the Ukrainians are in the process of demonstrating that as well. But they, they have small but very high quality militaries that do not prioritize ground forces, which is fine because it's not what they need, what we need. They prioritize advanced technologies of various sorts, high-end air forces and air capabilities and air defense capabilities that are extremely important. Sweden is actually a major producer of weapons, high-quality high weapons. Um, and those are positive attributes for the alliance. And they will bring value. They will bring strength. They will bring coherence. Because... 
we do have an alliance obligation to Denmark and we do have an alliance obligation to Norway, which Norway does have share a border with Russia. Um, and the question of how you engage in defending in Scandinavia plus Finland with Sweden and Finland neutral is a lot more complicated than the question of how we can defend the alliance partners we already have in the Arctic, which is becoming a much more active arena, when we have a coherent bloc that includes Sweden and Finland and we have them fully integrated into our plans. So in many, many ways, they are important positive contributors uh, to the alliance. And one last thing I want to say about this, the Finns uh, have always helped, felt historically very close to the Estonians. Um, there's a, a you know a lot of um, so, you know sociocultural, uh, ethnic uh, commonality, linguistic commonality there. Um, the Swedes, uh, are, you know, are very tied to the Baltic states. As we look to the question of how do we defend the Baltic states against a possibly future revanchist Russia attack? Having the Swedes and the Finns fully integrated into a Baltic defense system, which has not been possible hitherto, offers up a whole array of possibilities that have nothing to do with the size of their militaries. So, yes, absolutely positive. And you want to say a little more? By the way, in terms of the size of the military, Finland has quite a few as a high number of troops that actually can field, as I understand yeah, it, yeah. like 275,000. And the force that in a Russian force that invaded Ukraine was like 190,000. So Correct. that's that's significant, even, under, yes. even for a small country. I mean, go ahead, Brad. Uh, Cliff, I think uh, Fred gets it right. I agree with everything you said. I just add a few elements. I mean, my, my bumper sticker thought on um, Sweden and Finland is that they bring small but very capable militaries, one. And two, if you look at a map, you immediately start to begin to understand what Fred was talking about in terms of the geography. You know, we've worked with Finland and Sweden uh, with exercises for a long, long time. But having them in the alliance allows you to write them into the war plans and make some assumptions about how you implement the war plans that increases our deterrence. So if you're sitting in Nebraska, you say, who cares? Well, and this goes to what Fred was saying earlier. It's, it's about the, the troops they'll put in the field like we just talked about with Afghanistan and they put their money where their mouth was on that. That's the point we're trying to make. And it's about deterrence. So does bring bringing Finland and Sweden into the alliance increase, decrease, or neutral to NATO deterrence, thereby American security? Why do we care? Our, you know, our leading training partners, we had two world wars emerge in Europe in a 30-year period that pulled us in and more, more than 500,000 Americans lost their lives in those world wars. And in 73 years, we haven't had anything like that. And there's lots of reasons for that. We could talk about nuclear weapons, another thing. But the primary reason or a primary reason is NATO. If you don't believe me, look and see who does Russia, who does Putin invade and occupy and bully? Non-NATO members. Who does he not? NATO members. Note to self, get these countries in NATO, right? I mean, some of this is not that complicated, I'd say. Um, so when you look at the you know highly capable, small, but highly capable militaries, the geographic advantages, the writing them into war plans, increasing NATO deterrence, this is in the selfish American interest to do this. This is not charity. This is good for us. And our NATO alliance, I would argue, is one of our leading grand strategic assets. And we take it for granted at our peril. Beijing and Moscow dream of having allies like we do. And if we're so silly and short-sighted as to take them for granted, 
that would be a huge, huge mistake for us, our children, and our grandchildren. A related point here is that if we agree that Finland and Sweden coming into this alliance is bolsters deterrence, we should also understand, which a lot of people don't, that it's much cheaper to successfully deter an adversary than it is to actually fight an adversary. And the, one of the reasons, I, again, I, don't, I hear people don't get this, if we had managed to make Ukraine, even, even not bringing it to NATO, but helping it to have a real strong deterrent capability. Imagine it had javelins. Imagine it had stingers. Imagine it had... Putin might have looked down and said, boy, I really do want to take Ukraine because how dare they think they're not Russian and not not kissing my ring and reporting. How dare they? But, ooh, I don't think it's... My generals tell me it's just not doable because the damn Americans and the damn... they've They've armed these guys to the teeth. I can't do it. You wouldn't be in the situation we're in now where we have to do this late afterward. The other And the other point, and feel free, is the philosophy of, oh, our strategy is not to provoke Putin. If we don't provoke him, he won't do anything bad, as opposed to, no, we're going to let him know that we're going we're gonna to deter by denial. We're going to make, we're going to persuade him, not just that we'll punish him with sanctions after he does something bad, but we'll make it clear to him that he cannot succeed. And if he can't not succeed, he'll do something else. He'll take up yoga or he'll go bird watching or target shooting or wrestle bears in Siberia or something like that. I really want to take up the issue about provocation and about Putin. Look, the language of provocation is the language of aggressors. When you're in a, having a conversation and someone is saying, if you do that, that would be very provocative and you would, you would force me to take some very unfortunate acts, actions that we would both regret. What am I, I'm a, that's what mob enforcers say. That's what, we don't say that to other countries. We don't say to other countries, you know, if you, if, if Russia brings, uh, you know, uh, such and such a country into the Eurasian Economic Union, we would regard that as a grave provocation and that would compel us to take dramatic action of X, Y, and Z. It would provoke us to, that language of provocation is the language of an aggressor. And so you need to actually internal, it's real, okay, I mean, you can provoke someone, um, but you need to internalize that as soon as you're having that kind of a conversation with someone, Especially, by the way, when the subject at hand is a defensive alliance that is explicitly forbidden from having an offensive purpose. Um, and the, and, you're, and the, you're interacting with someone who's saying, if you expand a defensive alliance, you're going to provoke me to attack. You have to, you have to realize that you're dealing with a different kind of mentality. Okay. And I'm not, I'm prepared to say we can have a discussion about whether it's wise to take any particular action in regard to such a person. But you do need to realize that we can't mirror image ourselves and we can't imagine that we're talking to someone who has a very Kissingerian worldview, right? And, and, and be engaged in normal trade space, someone who's, who is engaged in that. So what are we dealing with, with Putin? We're dealing with a predator. Putin is a predator. 
he sees the world in terms of those that eat others and those that are eaten by others. That is Putin's world. And by the way, he has been as clear about this as you can imagine for as long as he's been in the public arena. He says over and over again, weakness is lethal. And he it actually, even before this war, when, when you got Russian officers off to the side and spoke about them candidly, they might they would say things like, only strong states have sovereignty. There is a very Melian dialogue aspect to the Russian view of the world, to the Putin view of the world, right? The strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. That, that, is, that is the predator's view of the world. And that is Putin's view. So the challenge that we have here is not avoiding provoking someone who has reasonable concerns for his security, whom we have somehow threatened and boxed and backed into a corner, and any reasonable person in his position would be taking the kinds of actions that we're dealing with. The person that we're dealing with is someone who looks at his neighbors and thinks, which one of you is weak enough that I can take you down and eat you for my next meal? And that's why the language of provocation needs to be met with the language of deterrence, which has to be followed by the language of defeat if deterrence fails. This, the point you're making strikes me as extraordinarily significant and, and broadened it for the, this way. If those who are isolationists and they're in, on the right as well as the left, and they may call themselves restrainers or retrenchers or advocates of responsible statecraft, Essentially, I also support responsible statecraft. By the way, well, yes, I just want to be clear about that. Yes, <laughs> but you're not you're, you're not using that as a euphemism. No, 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 or no. other things which I think they are. Yes, I agree. And and what they don't seem to understand, and think is is the is the larger picture here, because once we say, okay, this is none of our business, then Putin and other predators, and there's a big one in Asia, there's a big one in the Middle East. They say that's good. Because we will now, we, we our, our law of the jungle, our, our way of dealing with the world, which is we're strong, we'll do what we can, they're weak, they'll suffer what they must, that becomes the way of the world. That becomes, in a sense, the new world order. Now, you can say, so what? I don't care. I can still go to Provence for my vacation, at least for the next 20 years, surely, I don't care because we have two oceans and uh, all kinds of reasons. I don't care what happens to the rest of the world. But it also implies in that we made a big mistake preventing the Nazis from and the Japanese militarists from conquering the world in World War II. Because if you're going to let totalitarians run the world uh, on a predator-prey basis, you might as well have done it then. And we didn't. there was no good reason to fight the Cold War because that was also to prevent the expansion of these predators in other, in other areas. We wanted to at least contain them, even if we didn't think at that point we wanted to fight them. But if now we're going to say, you know what, forget about it, we didn't really need to. That's what you're saying, that those battles, those wars were of no value because at the end of the day, Let's let the predators rule the world. That's the way it is. And it doesn't matter to us in America or to our kids or to our grandkids. Is, is there another way to see it? Look, 
there's a couple. I mean, of course, there's lots of ways of seeing it. Um, Americans are are waking up to the reality that their quality of life is intricately interwoven with a certain way of having the world work, and we've been woken up to that as it has been disrupted. Some of us have been. Go ahead. But, uh, yeah, okay. No, but, we're, we're having fights well, about this. Well, yeah, okay, but that's new because for most of our history, we really haven't paid that much attention to this. And it's been something that's just in the background. And every now and then wonks like us would get up and say, by the way, that, you know, the liberal world order is essential to American prosperity. And people would say, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. right, right. Okay. But the truth is that as we've started to see what happens when you have serious global supply chain disruptions and how much strain that that actually puts on ordinary Americans, mm, a much mm. wider sector of the population, I think, has come to realize that what goes on elsewhere in the world actually matters to them. What we have had a harder time understanding is that it matters who's running anything. So, OK, yes, the Chinese, let's pause it, the Chinese are evil, right? The people will. I'm actually no problem assessing that, but let's you know let's posit that Chinese are evil. People say yes, but we're buying all kinds of stuff made in China. So what difference does it make that they're evil, right? And if they take Taiwan, then they'll just sell whatever the Taiwanese are selling, and it doesn't make any difference, right? Except that it turns out that it doesn't work that way because they don't desire us to prosper, and they desire us harm, and they use the leverage that they actually gain. To cause us to to try to force us to do things that we don't want to do. Um, the China, have you? Uh, uh, does it occur to you the Chinese you like spy on you? It occurs to me all the time. People are very focused on what they think the NSA is doing to them erroneously. Um, but we've started to wake up to the reality of what the Chinese do. Now, again, most people say, "Well, what difference does that make? I'm not as long as I'm not going to China, then uh, it doesn't matter." Um, you know, when, you're, when your accounts are getting hacked and you're, uh, you're losing money and people are stealing stuff, not all of that is just American innocent cyber criminals. Some, a lot of that is state-sponsored activity and enabled by states for the purpose of disrupting our own activities because they don't want to see us prosper because they wish to change the world order. And we are the obstacle by existing and by being strong. So there's a lot of factors here that go into it's not just the case that it doesn't matter to us who's producing the widgets we buy. That actually does matter. And, you know, a simple example, I, I, you know, there's a a baby uh, formula shortage you may have heard. I gather that we're importing baby formula. From whence? Well, from Europe. Does the Europeans have have a surplus of baby formula? Uh, why no? They don't actually. So why is that happening? Because we have a long-established partnership with the Europeans that is cemented in part by NATO and by decades of agreeing to help one another. That we help one another. We don't have that kind of relationship with China. The Chinese would not be rushing to provide us with uh, supplies that are in short demand in China if we needed them. On the contrary, they would be raising the prices and taking other advantages. So there are all kinds of ways in which ordinary Americans would be harmed, even in their pocketbooks. And I wanted to just start off with that, but that's that's actually not the key point. The key point is you are rightly describing 
the danger of descending into a Hobbesian world. A world of where we are, it is the war of all against all. We have two oceans. That's interesting. There are things called intercontinental ballistic missiles. There are things called naval ships. There are things called unmanned aerial vehicles that can fly from one side of the globe to the other. We are not invulnerable. On the contrary, we're highly vulnerable. There are things called cyber attacks. There are lots of ways for our enemies to reach us. And it's much worse now than it was when we were, if you want to contemplate, maybe if the Nazis had occupied Europe, that might or might not have been a massive immediate threat to American national security. It would be now. In the world with the technology that exists today, it absolutely is. And even beyond that, I'm not done, I'm not done with this rant. We have, we're taught, we spend a lot of time, at least in, in my circles and yours too, talking about artificial intelligence and automation and robotics and, and all of those sorts of things. And we talk about how advanced the Chinese are in this, uh, in these respects. And those of us in national security are concerned about this and so forth. Um, but here's one thing that you, we might want to consider a little bit more. As we move into these kinds of technologies, especially things like autonomous weapons, where the decision to kill or not kill can be made entirely by computer with no human in the loop at all. I'm pretty sure that I know how the Chinese and the Russians are going to answer those questions. I can look what the Russians are doing in Ukraine and what they did in Syria, for which they paid a shockingly little price, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why they're doing it in Ukraine at scale. I can look what the Chinese do to the Uyghurs and done other minorities. And I could say, I got a pretty good idea about wh how, what kinds of ethical decisions are going to be made about what restraints to put or not put on these technologies as they develop. And so I, I ask my fellow Americans, who do you want to be setting these standards? Who do you actually want to be shaping the future of conflict? Do you want to leave it in the hands of people who think that it is it is a, it is a wise and prudent and ethical move to impl implement the Tacitian quip they they made a desert and call it peace, which is what Putin is doing in Ukraine, or do we think that the free countries of the world that actually have shared values that value freedom and humanity? should be important voices in shaping how the world evolves. Because if you think that that's true, then you look at NATO in a different way and you say, so one of the interesting things about NATO is that it brings together the two largest economies in the world by a long measure into effectively a single dominant, unassailable economic position in the world. The Chinese will never come close to the combined economic strength of the United States and Europe. Never. And there is no other rival on the, on the shore. As we work closely, and if you add in our, our Asian allies, if you add in Japan and Australia and South Korea and Taiwan, it's even, it's even stronger. That 
coalition, that consensus around a set of values cemented by an alliance system with us at the center gives us a predominating voice in how the new technologies that arrive will be used and the degree to which they will be deliberately shaped and twisted for evil or for neutral or for good. Yeah, it is a it is a functional um, international community as opposed to the dysfunctional international community that people always refer to, and that is structured at the UN. I want to get something on the table, and then and you said one is okay. Ukraine is not a NATO member. Okay, we don't have a treaty obligation to NATO. We do have an obligation. It seems to me that at least should we should mention, which is the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances which theoretically provides American security assurances to Ukraine against threats to its territorial integrity or political independence. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons for that. This was a non-proliferation activity that was meant to do. So we're not without any obligation whatsoever, and our credibility is diminished if we say, yeah, we signed that paper, but, you know, we didn't really mean it. And that's important. Here's where I'm going with this, because we do, we just had a, we have this $40 billion bill uh, to supply, uh, to, to help Ukraine. And you hear a lot of people, including friends of ours at other cons- conservative think tanks saying, wait a minute, uh, we said we'd help them, but not $40 billion worth. That's, that's, that's crazy. We can't do that. We have need, we don't have that kind of money. Uh, maybe if we give them, I don't know, 5 billion, if they can do that and defeat Putin or keep him off, fine. But that's all we're paying for this. That's essentially what they're, what they're saying, isn't it? Uh, Brad Goyd, you want to start on this and then let Fred pick it up? Because I know you have some thoughts on what that, I, I know you've looked at what that bill pays for, and it's not charity. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that to me, that's the theme running through this whole discussion, is that um, our support for NATO is not charity. It's in our self-interest. And, and to me, that's like the bumper sticker answer to almost everything we're discussing here. We're explaining why it's in our self-interest. And for Ukraine, too, which is for, not a NATO member, Ukraine, but nonetheless, we have an interest. For NATO, for all this. I mean, to, that's kind of the simple version I, I would put forward. And, um, you know, yeah, exactly. If if uh, if listeners will take time to look at that $40 billion, right? So so you, you can criticize the process. As someone who worked in the U.S. Senate for almost nine years, you can criticize the process. I give you an hour-long lecture how the process was terrible. I could also tell you the Republicans have done bad process just like that, just as much. You know, it's a bipartisan process has been bad for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you can critique the process. But I've also seen a lot of times where people who really have a policy beef disguise that in criticisms about process um, because they don't want to defend the policy criticism in the light of day. I'll just add that quickly. And I'll also say, if you look at the 40 billion, a large portion of that is for helping ourselves. Because if, you, if you've read the news carefully since the invasion, you, you see the word drawdown authority a lot. Listeners need to understand what that means. That means is we're taking our equipment that we have for our own reserves for a, for a bad day, for a rainy day, to make sure we have the capability and capacity we'll need if things go really bad. And we've been providing much of that equipment to Ukraine. I think that's been smart. I support that. That's been wise because of the urgency there uh, and the stakes involved. But it's also important that we replenish those supplies for ourselves that we've provided to Ukraine. And a large billions and billions of dollars of that 40 billion is for that. 
and it's and it's for expenses we've incurred in Europe with our own forces. And so, um, you know, so I just highlight that. And I'd also highlight, you know, helping Ukraine, um, even if some of the money goes directly just to help Ukraine, which, of course, it does, is is a bargain. Because let's remember if, of course, as both of you know as well or better than I do, if we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, we're going to get more of the same elsewhere in Europe. Of course we will, based on everything Fred said earlier about him being a predator. No, of course. And who else is watching? China, North Korea, and Iran are watching. And they're asking themselves, can I accomplish my objectives, my political objectives, with military force. And, you, and you know, we don't have time to talk about the provocation promise, but I could go off for an hour on this. And Cliff, you and I have talked about it. I mean, I was there working in the Senate when the head of Ukraine came to a joint session of Congress pleading for weapons, saying, thank you, Obama administration, for the blankets. I'm so grateful for the blankets, but, can't you, but you can't defend a country with blankets, right? And, and why didn't we arm Ukraine after Crimea? Why did the Obama administration resist it? I was there. I was in the classified briefings. I was on the calls. It all boiled down to, I'm barely oversimplifying, to the provocation premise. We didn't want to provoke Putin. And I saw the same thing last year. We had indications and warnings early in 2021 that Putin was going to do something very bad in Ukraine. The Pentagon knew it early in 21. Secretary Blinken was saying it publicly in November. And yet look at all the lost weeks in October, November, December, and January. We could have been arming Ukraine and we weren't. Why? Because of the provocation premise. And this all comes back to what H.R. McMaster has talked about so eloquently, including in his book, Battlegrounds, Strategic Narcissism and Arrogance, where we think everything that bad that happens in the world is a reaction to us. We deny others agency. We assume they're all like us and we don't allow ourselves to consider there might just be authoritarian bullies in the world who are going to take as much as they can get or simply people that want to kill us like they did on 9-11. So, Fred, again, uh, you, I, you probably have things you want to add to this, but I'll throw in another question with it. And that is, there are going to be, I, I can hear them people saying, yeah, yeah, but, you know, 40 billion. And then in three months, you're going to say another 40 billion. And are, are Americans going to support this effort no matter what it costs? Is it an open-ended commitment? Is that really... Can, can we do that? And should we do that? And then you have people like Henry Kissinger, you mentioned saying, look, what we have to do is to give uh, give him an off-ramp, uh, make some, let him have some territorial concessions so he doesn't uh, think that he has been defeated because that would frustrate him. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, you know, with all respect <laughs> to uh, Secretary Kissinger's decades of experience, you know, who am I compared to him? But uh, if you boil down a lot of what he's arguing to me, to my ear, uh, it sounds like he wants to give Vladimir Putin a veto over the sovereign decisions of free countries in Europe to decide with whom they associate. Because when you hear Henry Kissinger talk about spheres of influence, that's what he's talking about. He's saying Vladimir Putin should be able to tell the people of Ukraine with whom they can associate. And I reject that. I say the people of Ukraine and their duly elected government should be able to decide that. And that's the fundamental disagreement. Do you want a world where free people decide with whom they associate and they disguise their own policy? Or do you want a world where bullies like Vladimir Putin decide? And be careful how you answer that, because that has very important manifestations in places like the Taiwan Strait. Go ahead, Fred. I'm sorry. I've... No, no, this is great. Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry. I, I thought that was the me. I, that's my fault. No, 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 no. no. No, that's great. Um, look, let's talk about the bill. Let's talk about the money and the forty billion. And can you know? Can we afford this? 
Um, how much did we spend on on COVID relief and stimulus again? I'm, I don't know. I'm going to guess. No, I don't know. Go ahead. You tell me. It was several trillion. Several trillion dollars. dollars. If I recall mm-hmm. correctly. Um, the U.S. I mean, I don't have these numbers at the tip of my finger. But the U.S. federal budget this year, Brad. Do you know what that is? So what is it? One and one. I don't. I don't. But uh, you know, it's usually well over a trillion was, dollars. I mean, the, the number I love to throw out there is we're spending near post World War II lows as a percentage of GDP or a percent right. of federal spending on defense. And so I mean, yeah, kind of put this all in perspective. No, we, yeah, absolutely. But um, my point is, we, it's easy. Here's the problem with government. Okay, I mean, well, no, sorry, there's lots of problems with government. Here is a problem with the conversations that we have uh, about this. Almost any number that you pull out of any budget that is a government, national, federal government budget, and put to the people, you can say, "Look at what an unbelievable, outrageous amount of money this is." There's hardly anything. There's hardly a line item in the U.S. federal budget that would not have that effect if you pulled it out and held it up and said that to any normal person who looks at forty billion dollars and says. I, I don't even know how to begin to contemplate a number like that, right? So that's there's a certain kind of it's a sort of a financial, you know, waving the bloody shirt thing to pull out a number like that and say, how could we possibly afford to spend forty billion dollars on Ukraine? We have so many needs here, and so on. And it's a little bit disingenuous to do that and say, okay, let's not go through the previous five bills that have passed and look at every $40 billion increment in those bills, whether they pass through regular order or special process, and say that we, there's, we can't say that about any of those things for liberal priorities or conservative priorities. Okay. But we pull, so any, my point is simply this. It's not that it is it's a lot of money. Of course, it's a lot of money. And it's not that I'm a fiscal conservative. I am a fiscal conservative. I'm very, I'm a very unhappy about the deficit. I think we need to get much more serious about being fiscally responsible. But I do think that when you pick up a particular piece of legislation and you pick up a particular spending bill and you call it out and you say, this is, this is too much. This is the line. And then at the same time, you say, but it's not about the policy. I support the policy because that's the line of a lot of the people who are criticizing this bill is, of course, we should support Ukraine. And that's the first line in one of the defense. Right? Yeah. Well, of course, of course, we should support the Ukraine. But this, this bill. Right. I'm sorry. It's disingenuous. It, it is disingenuous. It is exactly as you say. It is masking an objection to the policy behind an objection to congressional process, which is absurd at this point, or to fiscal probity. Which is crazy because this bill, I guarantee you that anything, any amount of money we spend helping Ukraine is not going to bankrupt the United States of America. The other disingenuous claim you hear is, look, we're, help, this, we're going to spend all this money to help Ukraine uh, keep invading forces uh, from crossing in, from another country into, into, into Ukraine. Uh, we're going to help them secure their border, but we're not securing our southern border. But of course, the reason we're not securing our southern border has nothing to do with money. It has to do with an ideology that wants an open border. I mean, I, I I'm simply do not believe that it is impossible or fi- there, 
It could be done, but the decision has been made not to do it uh, at, during the Biden administration. Homeland Security is not interested in securing the border. Go ahead. Look, I'm not even going to get into that. I'm, I'm not even <laughs> getting into the argument about U.S. border policy, which is because I, I look, I do foreign policy. I don't, I don't, I don't get into that. That it's national security you, you, policy. Border security. No, no, no. Is I, I understand. I, I don't dispute that, but it's it's not my issue, and I'm not going to I'm not going to get into a ruling on what it should or shouldn't be. Probably not this, but I'm not going to get into a ruling on that. I am going to say that it's even worse than what you just suggested. It's not only that these things are unrelated; it's that they are logically unrelated in any way, except they both have the word border in them. Because the issue with our border is of the people who are peacefully approaching our border, not in organized military forces to invade us, but because they wish to come to this country and live here. Which of them do we wish to let in? That's that's our fundamental question at the border, right? That is not what is going on in Ukraine. What the Russians, it's not like we had a bunch of, of, of innocent Russians walk up to the Ukrainian border and ask to be allowed to migrate into Ukraine. And we're having some argument about Ukrainian border policy. A bunch of Russian armor columns rolled in to conquer the place. So this easy conflation of things is another sign of disingenuousness, in my, in my opinion. It means that we are, we are not actually willing to have the argument that people are really having, but we're just going to try to deflect it to, to, to a point that we think is going to be more resonant and stronger. Look, look, Cliff, I'm very passionate about this. I'm, I, you'll see from my emails, I end my emails with, you know, Slava Ukraini. I'm <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I am, I pretend no objectivity on this point. I think Putin is going for his third doctorate of evil. I would. I wish we could just award it to him constructively, so he didn't feel the need to earn it. Um, and I think we need to defend Ukraine. I think these are vital American national interests. I think reasonable people can disagree about exactly what American interests are, about whether we, how much we should defend Ukraine, about how much we should spend on all of these things. I happen to think we're doing the right thing. Almost. I think we should be doing a bit more. I have various, but. Reasonable people can disagree about that. But if we're going to have that disagreement, we need to have it in a straightforward way. And we need to stop using these various dodges and blinds to kind of sort of sneak in attacks and try to deflect and sabotage without actually explaining. Because the people who want to say, look, we shouldn't spend this kind of money, I'm going to say, okay, what do you think is going to happen? And when you've described what you think is going to happen, if we agreed on that, why is that okay? You have an obligation if you say, I actually think it's okay for the Russians, for us to just let the Russians complete this job, roll in, conquer Ukraine, and work their will with it, which means mass murder, mass execution, mass rape at scale, looting of an of an order we haven't seen since the Second World War, physical destruction of an order we haven't seen since the Second World War, destruction of part of big part of the world's food supply, and on and on and on and on. That's the consequence. So if you're going to get up and say, I oppose supporting Ukraine, I'm willing for that stuff to happen. I personally think that as much as we have an obligation that we've tried to meet here to explain why Americans should do what we say, 
I think that the people on the other side have an equal obligation to explain why that's okay. I want to be, I got a million other questions without respect for everybody's time here. Um, but so let me ask this and maybe we'll, we'll end it in this discussion. Fred, what should be America's goals right now vis-a-vis um, the Russo-Ukraine war? How does the war end or if not end, stop? Um, you know, because I, you know, the, the, and I don't think that, I don't think you may, that this administration has been very good on this in terms of talking about, I mean, I think that they should be, they should be very clear and very consistent that, that I think, and I think H.R. McMaster would say this, we want to see Putin's war machine constrained. They're not saying it's going to be regime. They should not be saying it's going to be regime change. They should not be talking about Putin's defeat. Don't rub his, but we're going to, but at least containment and constraint of the war making machine. And that could mean going back to the status quo ante February 23rd. I, I think and there's a lot here on pack. I don't think there's any way that Crimea goes back to Ukraine, but it is possible, I think, to get the troops out. Otherwise, maybe not entirely, anyhow, entirely in the East and Donbass. But this is what I want to get your view on, Fred, before I can't leave without hearing you talk about this. Let me start by saying that Putin's objectives have not changed from the beginning of this war. He invaded Ukraine to conquer it, subjugate it, and fully dominate the entire country. His objective of doing that has not changed. Ukrainians defeated him at the Battle of Kyiv, and he redefined his military objective to be conquering the East. They defeated him in that. And he's redefined his military objective even more narrowly. But his overarching objective has not changed. And his demands have not changed. And that's telling. He is now in the process of trying to set conditions so that when he can recover and lick his wounds, he will be able to have another go from a more advantageous position and achieve the objective that has eluded him so far, but which has not changed. This is the first thing that we need to understand. Putin's objective has not changed, and it will not change as long as he's breathing. Second thing to understand is that the Ukrainian objective also has not changed. And there's been some confusion about this. People have been introducing confusion into this discussion. Ukraine's objective from, from 2014 was to live peacefully within its own borders and threaten none of its neighbors. Then it was invaded in 2014. And its objective at that point was to regain control of the territory that it had been illegally deprived of. It was invaded again on February 24th. And its objective is the same, to regain control of the territory that it has been illegally deprived of. That hasn't changed. Zelensky isn't going for some more ambitious aim than that. And he should not go for any less ambitious aim than that. If someone invaded the United States of America and we were in a war and parts of the country, pick a part you like, were occupied by an enemy power, how would you feel about the people who said, no, I think you should just let them have it? I don't think you'd feel too good about that. And I don't think you should. 
And I don't think it's right to look at the Ukrainians and tell them, no, we think that we should, we, we would like this to end because it's inconvenient for us. So you should make some compromises. That's not a compromise. That is condemning a portion of your people to foreign subjugation that is unbelievably vicious and brutal. If you saw people who saw what happened in Bucha, what I'm here to tell you is that is a that is a drop, that is a microscopic drop in the bucket of what has gone on everywhere the Russians are in occupation possession. And we want to tell the Ukrainians, no, we think you should leave your people to that. No. So the objective for Ukraine should be what it is to liberate its territory from the occupier. Will they be militarily able to regain control of Crimea? Probably not. If they could, should they? Sure, of course. Should anybody recognize the Russian annexation of Crimea? Never. But do we do have to demand its, you know, its, its retrocession in order? No. We can be realistic about this. And President Zelensky or whoever is in power over time in Ukraine can make such decisions they choose about what kind of compromises they want to make. But Ukraine is a sovereign state with a right to try to recover the territory that has been illegally seized and liberate its people. And it is in America's national interest to help them do that. That's what we're engaged in. Now, given that it is a Russian invading force that has deprived them of their territory and is brutalizing their people. The only way that that can happen, other than Putin suddenly seeing the light one way or another, may it happen soon, um, and pulling out, is for the Russian army to be defeated. So when Secretary Austin said that it's an objective to weaken the Russian army, a lot of people acted like that was somehow a change in U.S. objectives. It wasn't any change in U.S. objectives because it was simply stating the flip side of the objective of helping the Ukrainians liberate their territory because the Ukrainians can't do that without weakening the Russian army. So we haven't changed our objective either. And we need to avoid getting too much in our own head here and getting too hyper sophisticated and the strategic narcissism tendency to blame ourselves for everything. And say, no, no, we're getting too ambitious and whatever. Nobody's objectives here have changed. And the only objective that should change is Putin's. And our resolve to help the Ukrainians liberate their territory, liberate their people, and then, Cliff, yes, we're going to need to invest even more money in building Ukraine up into, a, again, a strong and robust country that is militarily strong enough not to threaten Russia, but to look too hard for what is going to be, I guarantee you, a very angry and vengeful Russia to look at again and think, yes, this might be a light snack. That will be in our interest as well, because foreclosing the prospect of future Russian war in Ukraine will contribute over the long term to peace and stability in Europe and in the world, which will benefit us all. All right, I'm going to ask one more question because I just, <laughs> then we'll let you go. We'll let you have final words. Putin is using famine right now as a weapon of war and, and diplomacy. We've seen that before. I saw it when I was at a reporter in Ethiopia. It's, but he's using it on a global basis. I don't know if this is a lot of people understand. He's using famine on a global basis to get his way. This is shocking. 
He expects that when millions of people are starving, the so-called international community will then say, well, we got to offer him some concessions because people are going to starve. Now, H.R. McMaster, the Wall Street Journal, a number of others, they got a suggestion here, a humanitarian military convoy to open up Odessa so Ukraine, so Ukraine can export wheat uh, and to avoid what's being called Farmageddon here. Is this, I'm curious to know, Fred, is it, I don't know if you've weighed in on this, good idea or bad idea? I always I approach this question in the same way that I approach the question of, of the no fly zone over Ukraine that people were talking about for a while, which is we I, it's just important that we start by having the conversation front to back and not back to front, um, as some people do. The way that we open a humanitarian corridor in the face of a blockade is by being prepared to engage in military action to lift the blockade because it's a militarily imposed blockade. So you first have to decide that you are willing to start shooting at Russians. All right. Now, if and if you're not willing to start shooting at Russians, then there's no further conversation to be had. And I think it's very important to be very blunt and brutal about that. Okay, because people tend to be somewhat vague about these things sometimes. HR never is vague about anything, but <laughs> other, other other people can be. So. There's a first, there's a switch. Are we willing, do we think that there's enough at stake here that we are willing to get into a shooting match with the Russians? Okay. If the answer to that is yes, then can we open a humanitarian corridor to allow shipping to Odessa? Yes, of course we can. Can the Russians stop us? Absolutely not. They cannot. We could. If we tried, do I think they would shoot at somebody? Yes, I think they would. I think they would compel us to demonstrate that we were actually serious about this. Would that lead to global thermonuclear Armageddon? No, it wouldn't. I'm very confident of that. Might it escalate to more of a shooting match in the Black Sea? Possibly. Although it's very, it's hard to tell with Putin, but it's very much not in his interest to do that. What would be the outcome of such a shooting match? would be the destruction of Russian military infrastructure in the Black Sea and the opening of the Black Sea to trade. That would That is the only conceivable outcome if we were serious about this. So those that's the basic framing that I offer for thinking about this. Now, I would only go one step further and say, if you once frame it in that way, because and I'm going to be frustrating here because I'm not going to give you an explicit answer, should we open a humanitarian corridor for this? Because what I want to say is, look, since I started with what is the key switch, are we willing to get into a shoot match with the Russians over any part of Ukraine? If we once say the answer to that question is yes, then I think before we decide that all we're going to do is get in a shoot match to let ships get into Odessa and get grain, we might want to ask if there are other objectives that that shoot match might serve. Objectives like ending this war more quickly and potentially more cheaply on terms that are more favorable to Ukraine, NATO, and the West. Um, trying to serve notice to Putin, for example, that it's over, that we're done here. Because from a conventional military standpoint, this is that is becoming an increasingly straightforward thing for us to do. So I'm I think you can you can go. However, you want to go on the question of should we open up the port of Odessa? But 
If the answer is yes, we need to recognize it means we're prepared to get into a fight with the Russians in the Black Sea. If the answer to that is yes, then I would just like to have a larger conversation first about what military objectives we should be prepared to pursue at what costs and what thresholds so that we make sure that we don't pay a certain sort of part of a price for something that we could then get without thinking about what else we could be getting while paying that price. Brad, I'll give you the last word or a last question for Fred, whichever you prefer. Well, thank you, Clef. And it's been a pleasure hearing your thoughts, Fred. Um, you, you, you asked me a question earlier and I didn't have a number handy. I looked it up. Uh, so the for the listeners, the federal deficit in 2021 was $2.8 trillion. 2.8 trillion in 2021. So when you're thinking about that 40 billion number, think about the 2.8 trillion federal deficit in 2020. I like Fred don't like federal deficits and debts. I see national security consequences with those. We should take it seriously, but it I, I think that does provide a little perspective. Um, Fred, you know, maybe I can make a, a sweeping statement. I would love to hear you just uh, quickly tell me where I got this right or wrong. I, I think the bottom line is that Ukrainians are exhibiting extraordinary bravery, fighting, fighting on the frontiers of freedom. And the stakes in this fight are, are core to American principles and interest, period. And, 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 and um, I think that it'll be much cheaper to give them $45 billion dollars uh, than not. Uh, and it's hard to measure, right? Because you can't, it's hard to measure a war that never happens, right? But we have seen 73 years of wars that did not happen in Europe, right? With NATO. And we saw the costs of two world wars in 30 years. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to uh, see the the benefits of the, of the costs we're avoiding. Fred, do, do I have that right or do I have that wrong? Or what would you add to that? No, I think you, you're on something very important here. The outcome of this war is not yet decided. And if if this phase of this war ends with, with the Russian forces in something like their current positions and the world kind of accepting that, then we, first of all, we're set up for another war. That's the first thing. And it will, that war will be launched on terms much less favorable to Ukraine. And the Russians might well win it. And what would that mean? That would mean the Russian border moving several hundred miles to the west and having to contemplate what would at that point probably be a restored and much less incompetent, much more serious Russian military on the borders of Poland and Slovakia and Romania and so on, posing a much more significant threat to NATO, requiring a much more significant military buildup in response to defend countries to which we actually have treaty obligations, having sacrificed an enormous potential geostrategic advantage of having a, a defensive glacis in Ukraine that is not actually a NATO member, but is effectively defending the NATO flank, the NATO, not the flank, the NATO front line. And that's one of the things that's at stake here. <clears throat> but look, I just, I, I think it's important to make arguments when you can on both realist basis and an idealist basis. And we've been having a, a largely realist discussion here, which I think is appropriate because I think if you can't defend it on those grounds, then it's problematic. But I want to pick up with something that you said, Brad, this is, a, this is in a certain sense, one of the ultimate wars of a free people against a vicious autocracy. And it has shown What's 
good about free people. Okay? Give me just a minute to expand on this, please. Ukraine is a mess. It always was a mess. It's chaotic. It was by design highly decentralized. It's a lot of corruption. Oligarchs, we're all familiar with Ukrainian oligarchs. Very hard to govern. Very contentious politics. Lots of internal criticism and fighting and backbiting. Kind of like us, actually. Um, very messy. Looked like an easy mark to the Russians. Because then you look at Russia and you've got highly structured society, dictator at the top, lieutenants under. There are no oligarchs in Russia, by the way. People talk about Russian oligarchs. They're not oligarchs. They have no independent power bases. There is Putin and then there are his lieutenants and they are where he puts them. And none of them have an independent base. And he's been steadily turning the screws on Russian society, basically recreating a Soviet mindset. The Ukrainians started calling the Russian invading troops orcs, which I think is is very apt. Because this has been a war of orcs against the free peoples. So what happened? The orcs flowed in. And they expected the free peoples to run around and get into arguments with each other and and fight and surrender or not fight and surrender and, and whatever and have no problem. What did the free people do? They didn't call back to Zelensky and say, boss, the Russians are invading. What do we do? They didn't wait for orders. They didn't wonder how stuff was supposed to happen. They picked up their guns and started shooting at the invaders. And they got picked up their phones and started calling the civil society organizations that they had spent decades building. And starting to say, Hey, I'm up here. There's a Russian tank column coming. We're running out of bullets. Can you get me some? And people going, hang on, let me call up. And then they were calling all over the world. We were getting calls. People in Europe were getting calls. We've got folks here. It was crazy. It was mayhem. It was freedom. It's what a free people do. They don't wait for orders. They use the networks they've invested in, the communities that they've built, the civil society that they built and invested in and value. And they work autonomously and they don't act like orcs and they make stuff happen. That's why Ukraine is where it is now. If the Ukrainians hadn't fought that way, this war would have been over in five days. I personally think that we have a tremendous stake in seeing to it that the world understands, including in people like Xi Jinping and Ali Khamenei and a bunch of other wonderful people around the world, that there is a reason not to mess with free people because they are much harder to defeat than they look like and because the other free people in the world will stand behind them. And whatever the other governments in the world will do, civil society around the world will stand behind them And we will defeat the orcs. I don't think there's a lot that we could do that would be of greater value for American national security than establish that principle indelibly in the minds of the predators and would-be predators around the world. 
Well said, and um, I'm so glad I got to ask you these questions uh, th today. And um, I've learned so much from you over the years, as I said, and continue to do so and hope to do so in the future. So thanks so much, Fred, for taking the time to, to be with us today. Thank you, Brad, for being my friend and colleague. It's been great to have you at FDD. It's uh, changed a lot for me. And thanks to all of you who have joined us, and I hope learned a lot and had a lot of food for thought from this broadcast here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.